Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the books editor of The Spectator, and this is just to say that I'm afraid our books podcast is taking a brief summer holiday. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and in the meantime, I do urge you to check out our Books Nuts coverage in the magazine proper, and to revisit some of our classic podcasts, as we now think of them, which we'll be putting out in the next couple of weeks to keep you going until our return. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by an alumnus of this very magazine, the journalist and historian Simon Heffer. And Simon's new book is a thumping 900-pager called The Age of Decadence, Britain, 1880 to 1914. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Sam. Why do we call this The Age of Decadence? I suppose the first most obvious question to ask about your book. Well, people remember the naughty 90s. That's gone into cliché. I suppose it was a time when Victorian values started to wear off. It's not merely, I mean, it's not, there, there is some sex in this book, but not a great deal of it. But it's where there is sex, it's the aristocracy behaving badly, not least the then Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII, who behaved worse than most people. But it's also a time when Britain, which has been the world's leading power, both militarily and economically, starts going off the rails. By about 1890, it's been overtaken by. Germany and America in terms of its industrial output and its wealth. And there's this great fear throughout the 20 years before the Great War that it's running down its army and its navy and isn't going to be capable of resisting an invasion that many people think may one day come from Germany. So it's an age of decadence not just because of, shall we say, a diminution of moral values, but also because there wasn't really that ideal in England, or if there was, it was one that wasn't properly followed through, of what we have, we hold. Um, there was an erosion, particularly in imperial terms, about the desire to safeguard British possessions. And this was most obviously seen in the Boer War, which Britain should have won in about three or four months and took them three years. You have a sense in the book of the aristocracy who were so sort of industrious and pushed these engines of expansion and improvement in the Victorian age, essentially kind of resting on their laurels a bit. Yes, that's right. If you think back to the era before my book, which I covered in my last book, which was called High Minds, which dealt with the era of Disraeli and Gladstone, if you like, when Gladstone was uh, passing all that legislation between 1868 and 1874 to open up Britain more as a meritocracy and to give everybody a chance to move up and to, and to prosper. Much of that was enabling legislation that was supported by the aristocracy. And I don't know what it was. There was a great agricultural depression in Britain between 1873 and the First World War, to the extent where, in East Anglia, where I live, getting on for 30% of land in Essex and Suffolk was derelict by about 1910, because there was no market to sell the wheat and the corn and the barley that was grown there. Uh, because of cheap imports from Canada. And so we were resting on our laurels. We'd failed to compete. The great landowners who'd been protected until 1846 by the Corn Laws were no longer protected from the ravages of free trade and uh, a proper liberal economy. And they never really adjusted. There were some in the north of England and also in in Wales and Scotland who were coal owners who had huge seams of, of coal under their land. And they did all right, although they were notoriously mean to many of their workers. I don't sound like a communist, but they were very mean. <laughs> I think there's but a middle way, isn't there? There, there? there could well be a bit of communism. Way. But an awful lot of those who had tenant farmers really struggled, and they often let the tenant farmers 
um, have a hard time. I mean, this was seen to an extreme in Ireland, of course, where there are many evictions, where things went really badly. But the aristocracy did tend to live off their laurels. And this was this was understood, not least culturally. I, I write in the book about a, a forgotten novel by uh, John Galsworthy called The Country House, which he wrote in 1906, just before he finished his first Forsyth novel, but which is set in the 1890s. And it describes very clearly the idleness and dissipation of elder sons and younger sons who are not prepared to take up their inheritance and their responsibilities in the way that their fathers and grandfathers had discharged them. And I think in terms of the aristocracy, that was an enormous problem. You say in the book somewhere that the most pernicious kind of idea about particularly the Edwardian age, but I guess it's the late Victorian and Edwardian ages, is that they were this sort of sunlit, dappled, sunny afternoon that was sort of interrupted by the First World War. Why do you think that particular image took root so powerfully? I mean, it can't all have been P.G. Woodhouse. No, it wasn't also entirely Julian Fellows, uh, who, or upstairs, downstairs. I, mean, I think that we've had several generations of Britons in the last 20 or 30 years who have grown up on novels and television programmes about the Belle Epoque, which make it seem as though it was a tremendous time. And if you had money, I think it was a tremendous time. And also, I think, and this is a point that Julian Fellows has often made about Downton Abbey, actually, if you were um, a member of the working class who was working in domestic service, you were obviously you were usually pretty well looked after. You had um, bed and board and reasonable wages, and you had continuity and security of employment. And you weren't working down a coal mine, or, and you weren't working in a factory doing a boring, repetitive job for 12 hours a day, which many people were. So I think that we have... We have thought that this was a really quite wonderful time of prosperity and peace. A third of the world was red. You know, the, the country was a great international power. And it's all gone, it all seems to go wrong in 1914. In fact, what I tried to say in the last third of the book is that it all went wrong quite a long time before 1914. When Lloyd George became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1908 and decided, obviously with the support of Asquith, the Prime Minister, to introduce what became known as the People's Budget in 1909. It caused a revolt of the aristocracy, who, of course, famously in the House of Lords, threw his budget out. There was a period, though, at the start of the century, where dividends grew, I think by about 10% in real terms, in the first decade, and earnings didn't grow at all. So the working class were very um, disobliged and very unhappy. You had more civil unrest and you threatened them six, since 1688. Huge civil unrest. It was called the Great Unrest at the time. I mean, in, there was almost a general strike in the summer of 1911, and London was largely paralysed by a dock strike and a transport strike in the summer of 1911, which happened to be the hottest summer in living memory. And the army was called into the docks not to, to move food to feed people, but to move food because there were so many rats populating the docks that they feared an outbreak of bubonic plague. <laughs> so things, things were really bad. And on top of that, you had the Irish, who after 1910, after a drawn general election, Asquith became reliant on the Irish for a majority in Parliament. And something that had been on the back burner for nearly 20 years, Home Rule, had to be taken off the back burner, and the Irish had to be promised Home Rule, which of course caused tremendous strife with the Conservative and Unionist Party, as it became known. And finally, and not least, there was the problem of women's suffrage, where you had a number of otherwise quite intelligent 
MPs, Asquith was one of them as a Liberal, who said that he didn't think women were really fit to have the vote. And you had this argument about why some highly educated society woman shouldn't have the vote, whereas her, her chauffeur or her butler did have it. And there were these two groups, there were the suffragettes and the suffragists. The suffragists were people who simply used arguments to try and get their way. The suffragettes went around burning down houses, burning down churches, breaking shop windows, going on hunger strike and becoming extremely militant. So when you add those four things together, the six or seven years before the Great War are years of tremendous civil unrest and tremendous unhappiness. And one's got to be very cocooned indeed at the time, not to notice any of this going on. And you don't just address those years immediately before the Great War, though. I mean, one of the questions, a lot of people, historians seem to slice up the period very conveniently by starting or ending at Victoria's death. You start in 1880. What is it that causes you to take that sort of particular chunk? Well, the simple answer to that is my last book finished in 1880. My, my last book, which was also 900 pages long, was going to go to 1901, and it would have been 1,200 pages long, so it didn't. But there is a, there, so it's not some complicated Hobbes-Bormian argument about well, the long 20th century or I'd, short 20th century. I'd love to make a complicated Hobbes-Bormian argument, but actually there is a logic to it as well. 1880 is the year that Disraeli loses his last election and he dies the following year. And the Gladstone who comes back, for various reasons, is very unlike the Gladstone of 1868 to 1874. And there is almost a new zeitgeist that comes with that new government and with the death of Disraeli. And to me, there is a continuity of philosophy, ideas and momentum from 1880 onwards. I mean, there are seeds in the 1880s of all the problems that I've just outlined to you. Um, There's a, a famous strike in 1888 at the Swanvester Match Factory in Bow, in the east end of London, where young women, and it's mainly young women who work there, the phosphor they're putting on the matches is in, is incredibly toxic. And they're getting something called what they call flossy jaw, where their jaw starts to rot uh, because of exposure to the, the phosphor. And they go on strike. And it's a seminal moment, not just for the labour movement, also for the feminist movement. And it's a, a sign of that unrest, that division in society, which manifests itself quite early on. It's, it's there in the 1880s. Even before then, there's a big docker strike. There's the rise of the socialist movement under people like Hindburn and John Burns and even William Morris, who's now better known for his wallpaper, that all starts in the 1880s. So there's a sort of caesura, I think, that comes down. There's also a kind of town-country divide, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of shenanigans to do with the Tories thinking, if we extend the franchise, as is logical to the country seats, we won't be in power for another 30 years. That's right. I mean, they are very hostile to Gladstone's successful attempt to extend the franchise in 1884-85, which happens in two franchise bills, because it had been extended to working-class men in the towns in 1867. And, yes, the Tories are very worried that they won't get back into power, and yet they do. They're in power from 1886 to 1892. And under Salisbury, who has this reputation of being a little bit of a reactionary, um, it's quite a progressive government. I mean, Balfour, who's known as Bloody Balfour, his nephew, who's Chief Secretary for Ireland from 1887 to 1892, comes down with a very hard line on the Irish after the first Home Rule Bill has been defeated. But he also puts into train a programme of land reform 
and tries to make things better for the Irish and tries to stop the, the rash of evictions and everything else. Salisbury introduces a whole new strategy of local government in this country. All of our county councils date from 1889, and that was all down to Salisbury. And he also tried to improve housing, something that the Israelis government had started on with the Artisans Dwellings Act in 1876. So he, he wasn't a sort of stick-in-the-mud reactionary. He did try to, to make things better. And it, it was a period where there wasn't sort of Russian-style worries about revolution, but there were concerns that if the working class were not given a fairer crack of the whip and given a, so I'm using many awful metaphors here, given a slightly larger slice of the cake, they would turn very ugly English indeed. Metaphor, it's a very good English metaphor. They, they they would turn very ugly, and that was what Salisbury and others in his government tried to prevent. I mean, one question that's arisen, you dispatch it in the very early pages, is you've written a 900-page book about this period in the run-up to the First World War, and you expressly say, I'm not going to address here the causes of the First World War. On the face of it, that seems like a sort of perverse decision. I mean, are you not leaving out a huge... Sam, I'm, I'm enormously glad you asked that question. The first... 35,000 words of my next book are about the causes of the First World War. This book, as you've you've said correctly, is 900 pages long. And if I had gone into the whole background to why the First World War broke out and why we became involved in it, more to the point, because this is a British history, it would have been another 100 or so pages at the end of the book, and that just wasn't feasible. Also, I think it belongs better. My next book, which will come out in about two years, which will be the third volume in this sequence will deal with the the whole period of, I don't want to say the home front, it won't be a military history, but it will deal with British politics, culture and society between 1914 and 1919. But it will begin on the 28th of June 1914 with the outbreak of, uh, well, with the assassination in Sarajevo of the Archduke and how over the next few weeks we were were sucked into that. And I didn't think, actually, it, it would have been a good idea to put it in there because that is the start of the story and not the end of it, really. And I want to tell the rest of the story about how we became a nation equipped for total war, which by the end of 1916, early 1917, was what we were, how that happened starting from, from June 1914. So it's, it's, not in, it's not in there. What is in there, and this reflects also the obsession of the country at the time, is the fact that a civil war is about to break out in Ireland in July 1914. The House of Commons do not discuss the situation in Eastern Europe until the 23rd of July 1914. This is almost a month after the Archduke has been assassinated because we are so fixated on the fact that the Home Rule Bill has passed into law. It's gone under the 1911 Parliament Act. It's been passed for a third time by the House of Commons, so the House of Lords doesn't have a veto. And the Unionists, who are mainly in Ulster, are saying this is horrific. Um, we're not going to put up with it, there's going to be a civil war. And you've got huge quantities of illegal arms flooding into Ireland for both sides. This is what is obsessing people in the summer of 1914. And I've written this book from the point of view of, if you like, the intelligent Briton who is in this country during that period, what does he or see or she see is going on? And I say until the 23rd of July, hardly anybody saw anything was going on. If you read the newspapers for that month, indeed if you go back, I think I have done so, you read the Spectator, it's not until the last week of July 
that people say, hang on a minute, things are turning a bit ugly in, in, in Austria-Hungary uh, against these poor old Actually, Bosnians, aren't they? Yes, Bart's novel, the children's book, I think covers almost exactly the same period. Yeah. She has talked about how, you know, it came down like a sort of guillotine. Nobody saw Absolutely. the First World War coming at all. Yes. It, you know, we look at it elliptically. Yeah. But, well, there's this know. utterly brilliant book by Professor Christopher Clark, Cambridge Regis Professor of History, called Sleepwalkers, which came out about four years ago, which is the, an unsurpassable account of why it happened. But he makes it very clear that although you have one or two people, and I talk about Lord Northcliffe in this book, Northcliffe, who, uh, of course, owned the Daily, founded the Daily Mail and bought the Times in 1908, was obsessed with the idea that Germany was going to invade. And he would visit Germany most summers, either with his wife or his mistress, and drive around and send back long letters to his chief leader writer saying, I've seen the most terrible things here in terms of how efficient they are and how <laughs> successful their industry is, how much money they've got. And he comes across as fabulously batty in this book, actually. Uh, well, he gets battier, believe yeah. me. Uh, vol 3, he, he goes totally bonkers. <laughs> but, you know, Northcliffe was serialising novels. I quote one in particular by, by a spiv called William Lecoeur, called The Invasion of 1910. Uh, and this was a novel that was serialised every day in the Daily Mail and talks about the Germans in 1910, it's done in 1906, invading Britain and going through Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex village by village, raping and pillaging. But that wasn't um, alone, was it? I mean, there's the Riddle of the Sands and that, that's an only Saki novel. You Saki, talk yes. About, you know, um, yes, when, when William came. Well, the Riddle of the Sands was earlier and, of course, was, was slightly less less about the, the pornography of violence than, than Lecoeur. Lecoeur was instructed by Northcliffe only to have the Germans doing bad things in towns where there were big sales of the Daily Mail. <laughs> so places like places that have faded from memory, like Beckles and Malden, suddenly have terrible things happen to them by these marauding Germans. <laughs> because the Daily Mail sold quite well there, and I'm sure still does. It, it wasn't a literary work that Erskine Childers would have recognised, let's put it that way, or indeed Saki. But it's very peculiar, isn't it, that in this period... You know, these sort of popular novels actually do seem to feed into the imagination quite directly about political and contemporary and near yeah. future events. I mean, is that, do you think, something to do with, with something larger you discuss in the book of this sort of huge expansion suddenly of popular literacy? You've yes. got the founding of the Everyman Library, you've got you yes. know, Stoker and Conan Doyle and people like that sort of suddenly, yeah. you know, popular fictions on the art. Everybody's reading. I mean, obviously people have started to read a lot in mid-Victorian times, which is why... Dickens and Trollope made so much money doing weekly serialisations, but certainly by the Edwardian period, a very large number of people not only can read, but have a disposable income to go and buy books. And this is why Dent founds the Everyman's Library, which I think is one of the greatest achievements of, of the Edwardian era, where for, I don't know, whatever it was, one and six or something, he provides a beautifully bound and produced volumes of the great literary and philosophical works of, of history, and so that uneducated people can have a chance to educate themselves. And it's the great era of the autodidact. Uh, and yes, I mean, novels had a great impact on people, as of course did an awful lot of self-help books. I mean, it's a little bit after Samuel Smiles, but there's this great tradition right the way through Victorian and, uh, and Edwardian times not just of novels that uh, try and encourage people to better themselves, but also, of course, children's papers, such as The Boy's Own Paper and The Magnet. I mean, The Magnet exists, we think, just to you know, make, a, make fun of Billy Bunter, but it's really there to teach low-middle-class boys how to behave like a public school boy, because, you, you know, you, 
call everybody sir and you behave well and uh, you take your beatings like a man and all that sort of stuff, all that crap, that's all in there. But it was it, they were a very important form of, if you like, social manipulation. And you had also this new breed of novelists. I write a lot about Arnold Bennett, with whom I'm fascinated in the book, um, was Bennett was writing largely about lower middle class people. Not just the inventor of an omelette. In the provinces, not just. He's more than an omelette, let me <laughs> tell you. But he's writing about lower middle class people and middle class people in the provinces for that same audience and saying, however much Virginia Woolf despised him, saying these people are valid human beings, they're valid characters, they deserve to have stories told about them and, and I will do so. And while some of his novels are pretty second rate, quite a few of them aren't. And he had a huge audience. You also talk about how, which I, I think is particularly, I mean, maybe this, this feeds into this subsequent idea of looking back on it as a golden age. You talk about this sort of consolidation in nostalgia. I mean, this is sort of Dictionary of National Biography, the OED, Fowler's, you know, getting revved up. I mean, why do you think there was this idea of, I mean, was it an anxiety expressing itself as sort of consolidating the idea of Englishness, the achievements of the past at a time of threat? I make the allegation in the book that the Edwardians invented nostalgia. And I think it was because the Victorian period had been a time of such incredible change at such speed that I think the Edwardians realised an awful lot of what they had from the past and what they'd taken for granted from the past um, was disappearing. It, I mean, there were, there were no listed buildings at the time. I write about the beginnings of the movement to secure national monuments. But it was years before listed buildings came in. I mean, even as late as the 1970s, they were demolishing Georgian town centres in this country, absolutely outrageously. But, you know, it was quite normal in late Victorian, Edwardian England to go and find a town that was almost entirely Elizabethan or Jacobean and just, just flatten it and put up Victorian buildings. A lot of churches were almost falling down, particularly in the country, that had been severely depopulated in the 19th century because everyone moving to the towns and, and working in factories and because of the agricultural depression. So there was a determination to secure and preserve the, the visual aspects of culture. But you also had, as you correctly say, people like Leslie Stephen and Sir Sidney Lee at the DNB capturing the lives of Great Britons going back to, I think, almost to Bodicea, to, to remind everybody where we had come from and from whom we had come. Uh, and the OED codifying the language, Fowler, as you say, codifying the grammar. Also, Cecil Sharp and Ralph Vaughan Williams going around England collecting folk songs from geriatrics. Um, because, I mean, these were traditional songs that had been sold by balladeers back in the 1830s and 40s um, that had died out. And they were very lucky to get there when they did, or to work out in, well, I think it was 1903 that Vaughan Williams collected his first folk song. Cecil Sharp had done so about three years earlier in, uh, in Somerset. Because 20 years later, when the wireless was invented and you started having Henry Hall broadcasting from Savoy Hill every night, a whole new mass movement of popular music was invented, which would otherwise have eradicated that, that folk knowledge of the past. So, I mean, the Victorian period had been a time of very rapid change. And there were people around who said, actually, there were elements of the past of which we were rather proud and which we rather liked. And it's important to preserve them. And that's exactly what they did. Out of curiosity, I mentioned Antonia Burke earlier. I remember her saying very distinctly of the characters in the children's book, you know, the Edwardian 
coach said, well, I, I like these creatures, but I could never love them in the way I love the Victorians. Do you have a sort of period, you know, of the period you've covered that you feel most at home in that... I know what she means because I think there was a. I think the Victorian era. I mean, certainly up to about 1880, for children was an age of innocence, and I think children became rather knowing and materialistic after that, because their parents were more knowing and materialistic. It was a, it was a change in in parenting, but I mean, in general terms, what would be my favourite era? It depends on how. Well, I mean, if you would say to me, when would you have liked to live? Well, I think I, I'd, I'd rather have liked to have been a reasonably well-to-do, uh, well-heeled chap in the 20 years before the Great War. Because I think I'd have had rather a good time. Not just because it was an age of decadence, but also I think there were, m- there were many interesting intellectual currents going on. Not least because of the rise of Fabianism and all those people like Shaw and Wells and even the slightly ghastly Sidney Webb. There was this great input of new ideas into the intellectual ferment, which... I think would have made it very interesting times, but also it's eugenics among them. Well, eugenics indeed among them, but also it'd be rather nice just to pop up to Lords in the afternoon and watch C. B. Fry and Ranji making a few runs against the visiting Australians. Yes, there's a, there's a strand of cricket going through this book. Which is well, there, well, there is. I mean, I and also I, I mean I don't like football. But I think to be fair to me, there's a bit of football in it as well. This is the time again when because more and more people have the money to spend on organised recreation. There is more organised recreation, and you do have this great professional sport. I mean, mainly in the north of England, you have rugby, which turns into rugby league up there, and association football. But also cricket, which is a hugely popular sport in the Victorian and Edwardian era. I mean, cricket organises itself as a county championship of sorts from 1873, but a more formal one from 1890. It organises itself before football or rugby, and... The, the real film stars of the day, notably W.G. Grace, are cricketers, and they are schoolboy heroes, and indeed public heroes. I was surprised you said that you quote Newbolt, you know, the play up, play up, and yeah. play the game, and you say that this is sort of speaking, which will surprise a lot of people who assume that's a classic sort of anthem of aristocratic stuff. You say actually Newbolt was speaking to the middle classes. Yes, he was. I mean, he was talking about Clifton College, where he'd been a schoolboy. And he he was writing about his memories of Clifton. But Newbolt, who became in the Great War one of our leading propagandists, I mean, he, ran the, he helped run the propaganda bureau with Arnold Bennett under people like uh, C.F. Masterman in the, in the First World War. He was, his audience were not aristocrats who didn't read, didn't read doggerel like that. They were middle-class people, newly literate people, who read poetry. And, and again, poetry in those days was more like pop music is today. There was no pop music. The gramophone was in its infancy. But reading Kipling or reading Newbold, to name two very popular poets of that period, W.E. Henley as well, people like that, was something that really appealed to a mass readership. And, and again, Newbold, rather like the magnet, was saying, look, here's a code of how proper chaps behave. And I'd like all you proper chaps to behave like this. Because there was the assumption... And he wrote that, I think, about 1897. There was the assumption that most of the young men who were at school, whether at minor public schools or at direct grant schools, as they weren't called in those days, or at elementary schools, could well end up having to defend the empire. And when those people went out there, particularly going out as other ranks or non-commissioned officers, what they had to learn above all was obedience. And they had to do things by the rules. They had to play the game. 
and uh, do what they were told by their social superiors who were the officers who were commanding them. I mean, Houseman, again, does that. Most of Houseman's poetry in the Shropshire Lad is about young men who are going off to die in some hellhole somewhere abroad to fight for queen and country. Shot so quick, so clean and ending. That was good, lad. That was brave. You know, all that sort of stuff. A final question I want to ask, which is a sort of, you know, almost to reverse the historical thing. You know, Julian Barnes said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. It just occasionally burps and we taste the raw onion sandwich that it had for lunch a few days ago. Can we smell raw onions? Is there anything in this book that speaks to the present present day as you sit? You know, Prince yes, of Wales, nation in crisis. I think our Prince of Wales is slightly better married at the moment than the, the one I write about. I'm not sure I agree with Julian Barnes about history not repeating. I'm afraid it does. That's why we had something called the Second World War. <laughs> um, it does repeat itself. I'm trying to think what might have repeated itself from the era I'm writing about. I mean, the, the trade unions at the moment have been emasculated. They were enormously powerful. The House of Lords has been emasculated. It was enormously powerful then. Women weren't enormously powerful and now are. So I think quite a lot of what, uh, what I write about isn't coming around again or won't come around again. Of course, since the Brexit referendum last year, we have decided to become, as it were, a nation striking out on its own again. And in that way, I suppose we as a country are more like we were then than we've been since the 1960s. So in terms of us being a a nation of merchant adventurers, if you like, that is the the only way. Whether our intellectual life can compare with the intellectual life of that period. Again, I don't know. We have some very good writers and uh, some interesting architects. I think probably our architecture is better now than it was. Edwardian Baroque, which I write about at great length in the book, was a pastiche and a deliberate pastiche, whereas I think our architects today, one might not like what they build, but they are trying to build something reasonably original. Uh, On the other hand, our musical culture, which was hugely important in that period, you know, you had Elgar at his peak, you had Sir Hubert Parry at his peak. You had Parry's pupils, Vaughan Williams and Holst, coming through and about to become enormously famous. That appears to have gone by the wayside. But when I look at my country today, and I walk around London, and I look at Edwardian Baroque buildings, I can't say I'm looking at the same country that I would have looked at 110 years ago. But the legacy of that country, and that's that particular moment in our civilization is still there and is very apparent. And you know, when we talk about living in an old country, much of what the Edwardians did and the Victorians before them did is still very apparent to us, and not just in our buildings, but in many of our institutions. And so I hope that anyone who reads my history books will see a country which, even though it is not recognisably the same, is a country that still quite proudly bears the legacy of that period. Simon Heffer, thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. In this week's books section in the printed magazine, we lead with Bernard Wasserstein's review of Simon Sharma's new book, Belonging, A History of the Jews. We also have Mike Cormack looking at the history of the Chinese typewriter. How do they fit all those characters into one typewriter? Lee Langley tours Japan with Michael Booth to find out the meaning of rice. Horatio Clare looks at the history of madness at sea. And Pete Stanford reappraises the legacy as a critic and as a poet of C. Day Lewis. We also have Sarah Dighton reviewing the first huge volume of the letters of Sylvia Plath and finding out that the Sylvia Plath that Ted created was as nothing to the Ted Hughes that Sylvia created. <laughs>